Pink Friends, uh, all kinds of great stuff going on. Uh, it's, it's not a celebration or not. We're not going to celebrate anything like that. Um, we're going to celebrate very differently today. Today, we are going to celebrate, if you will, the person of Bruce and the person of Nan. Um, if you're visiting today, you've come on a, a rather odd day for you to be at Warehouse. This is the last day that our pastor, Bruce, will be our pastor in this service. And so um, it's really a healthy thing when those kinds of moments in life come by to stop and to mark those moments and say, what is going on here and what does this mean for me? And, and to celebrate in the sense of um, praising those people or praising that person. Now, I, I think that Bruce would... Bruce, honestly, is pretty uncomfortable with the idea of praising Bruce. And so, um, hence, there are no large photos of him, um, at least, that you will see. Um, so, instead, we're going to do this in a very warehouse way. We're just going to put him to work. Um, and I think this is great. This was a, the first service was wonderful this way. You know, it's just great to see somebody doing the work that they do well. Um, you might wonder, you know, what is the work that a pastor does? And I'm going to answer that. I'm going to kind of try to set the day up a couple different directions. So what is the work that a pastor does? Um, or you might say, does the pastor do anything in this church? I mean, you might put that any way you want. The pastor has a really unique role. If you go back far enough, you go into the Old Testament, you'll see that there was this pastor, this guy named Aaron. He was a priest, another word for pastor. And, and when he got his original role and his original job, what God called him to do was to build a breastplate. And it was Aaron's job to go in and go into this, this space in this tent where God resided, where the Spirit of God was, and to wear this breastplate when he went in there. And God told him to put on these stones on this breastplate, these precious stones. And each one of these stones essentially represented different tribes of, of, the, people, of, the, of the nation of, of Israel. So the job of the pastor is to, first of all, keep the people close to their own heart, and secondly, to bear that treasure before God, because people are God's greatest treasure. God values us above anything else that he possesses. He, in fact, infinitely so he will give up anything. And it's the pastor's job, a very unique job, to bear us before God. God, and to bear us upon their own heart. And so that's what we're going to celebrate, is that Bruce has done that on our behalf. Now, I want to kind of put this in a, a different, a little bit different tense, because I've had some, a little bit of pastoring experience, and I want you to, I, I, I want you to understand that this isn't just a, a one-way relationship where, where you're getting something and the pastor isn't. God does this unique things when he builds churches and communities like this one. He, he calls a pastor, and the pastor comes, and, and it sets him inside that community. And in the best, best moments, what happens is that the pastor's work and call expands out in ways that they could never have imagined or hoped for because of the relationships and because of the uniqueness of the people they're called to live with. And similarly, the people expand and go in ways that they could never imagine because the pastor makes them uncomfortable, the pastor pushes them, brings his own personality, brings that calling, and really takes them in new places that they could never imagine. And the pastor knows that this, they have done a good job of this when in moments like in a service like this, when they, make a, they catch an eye connection with you and they see you smile at them or you wink at them, 
um, when you send them some signal. They know it when you say something to them like, you know, I want to be baptized. And then you, get, you hear that word? I mean, elation for a pastor. So they are being changed and you're being changed in always the best situations. And I think that that is one of the things we can celebrate. I want to just craft a little bit of what I don't want to, Bruce is going to talk about in this talk today about, about how we mark these moments, and I don't want to put my grid on your grid, but I want, to, I want to tell you just a few things that I'm going, that I think from my perspective, which Bruce has done and the way he's impacted our community and moved us so much further forward than, than we could have ever hoped for. And I want to um, talk a little bit just for a second about me personally as well. In three areas, I think that Bruce's ministry has gone out in ways that he couldn't have imagined entirely because he's in this community, and we could have never imagined without him. The first is the conversation about what the gospel is and the conversation about how Christ is saving us. So when you go, when I go into many churches, what I hear is a, not so much a conversation, but a, a directional, unilateral talk about what God is doing. So the pastor's, in essence, speaking, you know, speaking about God to people or speaking for God. And I think that Bruce, in very real ways, helped us to change and shape that conversation. So many times I heard Bruce express his own questions and his own thoughts, and I thought either, as Steve Brakeful and I were saying earlier, thought, you know, well, I didn't have words for that. But that's what, I've, that's what I've been thinking. I just couldn't think that out loud. Or I thought that Bruce would ask questions, and he was asking questions for us. That going before God and bringing that conversation before God. In a real way, being Christ. Because what we think Christ had, have, what we think what we believe as Christians is that since Christ has been resurrected, he's ascended and he's seated next to God, and he's making intercession on our behalf. He's having, uh, taking our questions to God for us. And so Bruce has done that, and he's changed that conversation and reshaped it in a way that's very life-giving. Certainly, um, where else has had this value for creativity, but Bruce helped us to push this out into the idea, really hardcore into art, which is different. Very unique. I, I don't know many churches in America that have this love for the visual rhetoric and for the written rhetoric that we do. Warehouse is very unique in that way, and I think we're marked because of Bruce in that way, and that will continue long, for very long. We're very very lucky to have that. So when you look around here, it's a colorful, vibrant, alive space. It's a wonderful place, and we would have never arrived there. And, and thirdly, and this is the big one, and Bruce has always relentlessly talked about loving our neighbors, you know, being Samaritans. And, and the verse, you can see a portion of the verse up here on the screens, the city rejoices when the righteous prosper. You know, in the dialogue that's happening in the culture right now, it seems like a zero-sum game. Either you win or they win, I win, you lose, but not everybody can win. And with, with this verse, I, I was a Christian for 34 years, and I never heard this verse. How, how could that happen? That when we prosper, our neighbors prosper. It's a unique vision of how God, uh, unique in the sense it's, it's really different, not shared by many people that when we prosper, our neighbors can prosper. It's not a zero-sum game. And I think that Bruce really showed us the way and really always didn't show the way, but maybe allowed us to find our way. So in places like Zimbabwe, saying, let's go to Africa a little bit. Let's find a different way 
to impact the HIV situation there. Let's not just take up a gift of money and write a check and sleep well at night. Let's really send some people over there to wander around and get lost and frustrated, and maybe after a couple years they'll figure out the way to do this is what we're doing now, growing, you know, partnering with, it, with people of faith, people impacted by HIV and, and people of faith, growing chickens, supplementing their income so that they have better lives and so that they're less impacted by HIV, and that will grow. Or the Christmas store here, right, at Christmas time bringing the neighborhood in, providing a place for people to purchase, crisp, to purchase their Christmas gifts for their kids at discounted prices and taking the, price, the, taking the profits from that and putting it back into, into the next year. In both those instances, finding ways for people to gain dignity and not just giving. It's remarkably different. So those are, you know, the kinds of things that I think that, that really could have never happened here. And so those are things, at least for me, that are worth celebrating. You need to make your own list up. What I won't tell you to do is what to feel today. I'm going to tell you, however, that you always look best when you wear gratitude. Gratitude is an important alignment in our souls. It's sort of a paying attention to what God is doing in the moment and being grateful. And so with everything that happens today, with whatever emotions you wear, what emotions you feel, wear gratitude. You always look good in gratitude. We're going to start with a video. It is a video specifically about the impact of art and written art, both visual and written and, and faith. And it really does crystallize how Warehouse is different. So welcome to Warehouse. We're glad you're here. I've loved words for a long time, trusted what books told me, dived into an author's imagination and heart. But when I was growing up in many churches, no one ever asked for volunteers who could read really well or write a great metaphor. Instead, I found myself in awkward positions where I never felt gifted. For instance, a few weeks ago, while searching through old photographs, I came across a high school picture of me leading a preschool choir during vacation Bible school. The camera caught me on my knees with my hands in the middle of motions for one of our songs and a tepid smile across my face. In that moment, sitting in our hallway with photographs spread out over the carpet, the waves of insecurity, obligation, and ineptness I felt in front of a group of three- and four-year-olds came rushing back. Now I love those sweet little kids, don't get me wrong, and now that I'm a mom of a lively little four-year-old myself, I'm crazy about the people who sink themselves in front of him. But nothing about my soul came alive in the midst of singing those songs, leading those hand motions, or faking some sort of leadership when it came to music. Like, I think back to the first, like, the Advent project, those four-by-four four paintings. Um, we were in college making paintings for class, and we would come home, and we had a tarp laid out upstairs, and I'm pretty sure they didn't like this. We had a tarp laid out upstairs at the carpeted floor, and um, we were using, we use every last ounce of paint in our home to make those paintings. 
when we were done with those paintings, there was, there was no art supplies left. And so it was very, very interesting to have that experience because while like pushing the materials more than we had ever done before, and while exploring the surface and, and talking about compositional elements and like, because the compositions are fairly simple, you know, but, so, but to think about the amount of um, almost pressure slammed into a four foot by four foot area was, was something we had never done before. I always am brought back to the original pieces that we did because that was such a almost paradigm shift in my mind, probably for both Joel and I, just to truly sit down and try to figure out how to represent scripture in, in some sort of simple yet not direct way. And it was just powerful to to spend all that time thinking on those things and trying to figure out what, what God was telling us. It's, it was just so neat to figure out how to show those things in a visual sense in our own interpretation versus just painting for ourselves. It's a whole new take on what art making is about. I wish I was more articulate. Uh, there's a lot of people, especially here at Warehouse, that really know how to put their thoughts to words and feelings to words and uh, I don't feel like I'm that skilled with that but oh, this, there's so many people in Warehouse that have um, talents, painting and drawing design, it's just um, it's, it's, it's cool to be in a place where you can use those gifts to experience God to try to figure out all of this so listening to uh, the Josh Ritter tune uh, but that was in 09, The Girl in the War. Um, it just struck me. Something struck me that Sunday. Um, and I I couldn't even tell you what it was, but it was enough to kind of um, put me in motion. It created some type of action within me. And it happens all the time at Warehouse. I mean, I can't. Um, Jess Ramsey can really articulate and writes great Take It Furthers. You know, I can't do that, but I, I, I feel something, and maybe that comes out in how I sing something or play something. It's been interesting for us because in doing artwork with, Air, with Warehouse, it's specifically been something where um, it's, a, it's, almost an, it's a venue where we can feel free to almost produce the art that we are going to produce, not the art that we are producing. It's it's not only, because I, I, I don't like the word comfortable, because although like that implies some level of like, you feel free expressing yourself in this venue or whatever, but it's more like, if we want to try something new, this is the time and place to do it, you know? And it was definitely a situation where, you know, while I'm making my own paintings and I'm trying to figure out like, where I'm at and what I'm trying to like become and do. Warehouse was a place where I could, I don't know, like I could jump off the roof. Each of the artists, the creative types who've been involved through studio, directly or indirectly, you're joining alongside them and going, oh, how does this, 
how does this gift that I have, this need to, to be creative, this need to express myself visually, how does that fit into this need to understand who God is and understand relationship with him and with the world I think part of studio was saying well those things overlap maybe we can one can feed the other and there can be a wholeness that comes or comes through that almost six years ago a week or two before Bruce married my husband and me he threw out a challenge write about your relationship Jess knowing me my love to link words together of my own and untangle the words of others. He pushed me to throw it all down on paper. I've loved words for a long time, trusted what books told me, dived into an author's imagination and heart. But not until this six-year-old wedding writing assignment did I recognize any validity in my own words. It opened my soul to experiencing my faith in a way that now feels like second nature. When I want to understand something about God, something about our faith, I turn to my craft. In so many ways, I still hear, write about this, Jess. Then, I can know truth intimately in a soul-blossoming way. And in that place, I thrive. Before I start, Kurt said uh, uh, something that struck me. He said it slightly differently in the first service that, uh, that he never saw me as somebody speaking for God, but I'd rather speaking for you all, articulating your questions. I love that because, quite honestly, it's always terrified me the notion that somehow I'm supposed to speak for God. I mean, who wants that mantle? And somehow I never thought that was the right thing. That's, I've seen that. It never seemed to be what any one of us ought to do, but rather it would always have made me happy if the questions I spoke were the questions you had. But that piece on art, I, I, there are parts of it that are just so striking, and they, they let me feel that moment that this has been time extremely well spent. To hear Jess and others talk about the intersection of faith and art, I don't know that if you know how unusual that is, in a church. In my experience, it's been very unusual. And we, together, there was a co-creation of meaning. As together, we formed a place where art mattered. Not just so there were pretty things in the wall, but as our, our, a way to articulate our deepest emotions and thoughts. When Joel Hoppler says that at Warehouse, that he felt freedom to jump off the building. In other words, to do anything. This was the place he could experience freedom as an artist. I don't use the word unique very often because it means singular and almost nothing is singular. And yet, in my experience, that is singularly true of this community is where artists don't feel like, well, what do you want me to paint? But this is the place I could do anything. Anyway. So, last night, I went to see the Avengers for the second time. <laughs> this time in 3D. While I don't love 3D, it's getting better and better. And why I don't love it is it kind of gives me a headache. It moves too fast. But this is, it's getting better and better. And there is a 
fight scene, which is perhaps the longest battle scene I've ever seen, even in war movies. And the 3D is worth it just for that. I went back to see it a second time. Mason and I, my 14-year-old, saw it about a week ago. I went back to see it a second time because I wanted Nan to see it, and Evan went and saw it as well. Abby was off doing something else. But the other reason I went back and see it is because I was talking with Steve last week about the Avengers, and he said, so what did you think of the alternate ending? said, what alternate ending? He said, Bruce, seriously, you've seen all the Iron Man movies, right? And you don't realize there's always an... I hung my head in shame. I forgot. And then he said, but in this one, there's two. There's the one you sort of expect, and then there's another one. Another one is really late. And so as the movie ended, I, I knew this. I was about to tell you, Mason reached over and goes, two endings. So we, we decided to wait. And the first one, you know, I'm not going to tell you what happens in the end. There's the first ending, and then the credits roll. You know what? There are a lot of people apparently involved in movies, and I never knew that because the credits roll on and on. I'm not kidding. They were sweeping up. They were picking up the, and we're, we're hanging in there. We're sitting there through it, and then we finally see the, the, the second ending, which, again, I won't tell you what it is, but there are two endings. Anyway, in seeing the Avengers, uh, one of the things that struck me, it was, it was just, just a peripheral thing, but the villain, Loki, you know, Thor's brother, stepbrother, uh, Loki has a, let's say, a poor view of sentiment and sentimentality. And so a couple of times he uses it, and he uses it in the most dismissive way as something without merit, an emotional attachment that you simply have to sever. It's probably not surprising to those young people that I'm not particularly sentimental. That's not something that would ever have been written like in the 10 words about me, that I'm sentimental. Nonetheless, I love the concept of marking moments. Infusing certain moments of your life with the significance that's only born out of time and shared experience. Because the truth is, we move very fast. And often our life proceeds at a pace where we don't stop and take into account what has just happened and how do I make sense of where my life is and what has mattered. And when we mark moments, when we infuse particular moments or places with the significance of the time and the shared experience, we learn things and remember what matters most. Nan and I have a bench. It is a red bench. It is ours. If you sit on it, I will ask you to move. It is ours. There's a red bench in Freedom Park. It sits at the top of a hill, and it overlooks the, uh, the, the lake, and it has this beautiful cross-section of, of pine trees and a garden. It's really a, a, a great spot. And so last week, uh, we went there, and we were sitting on the bench, and we sat for a good bit. And as we did so, we commented how we loved that bench. And there was something that marked the, the quality of our relationship by that red bench. And then we both remembered the scene from Notting Hill, where there's a scene in Notting Hill where Julia Roberts and you, you Grant climb, she better than him, but they climb a wall to sit in a garden, and they sit on the bench, and they look back, and there's a plaque on the bench, and what the plaque says was, to June, who loved this garden, for Joseph, from Joseph, who always sat beside her. Now, in the range of sentiments, that's a pretty good one. And so we wondered, is there a plaque on the, and there was, and so we read it, this stunning quote placed here courtesy of the Red Bench Brigade. <laughs> I don't know. Lacks some of the pop, don't you think? 
But that bench for us is not marked by a plaque. It's marked by the significance of time and a shared experience. As we sit in that bench and look and take it in and talk with one another. Today, I want to mark our time. I want to attempt in a very short period of time to infuse with significance our time in this shared experience. And I want to do that by telling you four quick things that really are at the core when all is said and done that I think really matter and are well, they're marks of a well-lived life. Because when I walk out, more than anything else that happens, if the shared experience we have had is we've learned to live well, well, I'll be quite content with that. I would not go so far as to say that I, like the Greeks, have discovered what the good life is and I can tell you exactly what it is, nor like Tolstoy, who said in Family Happiness, I think I know now what family happiness, where happiness is derived. I don't know that what I say is absolutely true, but it's deeply meaningful for me and I want to pass it on to you. The first of those things is things that I want to stick, that I want to mark this moment is it is worth it to live your life, to love some people well, and be loved by them. When, when all is said and done, if we can live our lives so, such that we experience the love of someone else and we can love them well, we'll be pretty content at the end. I have had the good fortune of for 22 years having my wife walk beside me. And we have shared so many experiences that have both tough ones and great ones that have deepened our level of commitment and the richness of our relationship. There are places you know, that were marked by them. When we were in California, you say Sonoma Valley. For Sonoma, Sonoma Valley brings a bell for us because when we lived in California, Sonoma Valley was perfect for us. We had little children. We could drive to Sonoma Valley, which was an hour away, and take our kids to train town, which at this point none of you would want to go to unless you have little kids. And they would ride the train, and we would ride it with them. And they would, there was a little petting zoo, and there was a carousel. And so it was like we did three things for the kids. Now we're off to Sonoma Valley, to wine country. <laughs> you see our plan. But for us, Sonoma became a place. I'll be honest with you. If at the end of my days, my headstone is marked, here lies Bruce, who sought to live his life well from Nan, who always walked beside him. I'll be pretty pleased. I have three kids that we love desperately, love them since the moment they came out of the womb. And, a, and an amazing thing that happens to you as parents from the moment they came out of the womb. But now at 19 and 17, nearly 18 and 14, I don't just love them, we don't just love them, we like them. How awesome is that? We think they like us, but we like them. We genuinely enjoy, and so we're, we're trying to capture those moments. And at this point in my life, I want to, I want to be so selective about where my time goes and the relationships I have because this is where it matters. Not to have a scattering of relationships of some, of some mediocre level. 
but to live life alongside people that you love and who love you. Second thing, find beauty. I've quoted to you probably 15 times the words of the French philosopher Simone Weil who said there's only two things that can pierce the soul, beauty and affliction. And I would say this to you, you don't need to find affliction. It will find you. This is our lot. Every one of us finds affliction. There are moments in our life where our heart gets twisted in ways we so wish it had not. Affliction will find you, and we do believe that we can find a power to live through that and to find strength and growth, but you won't have to look for it. Beauty is worth seeking. It's worth exploring those moments and trying to almost squeeze every drop out of the moments that we have and the things that are possible and the things that are beautiful and true. It's, it's one of the things I love about what our artists have done is they have sat there sometimes during my messages. If, you, if, if you've seen Jonathan Growl or Steve Brakefield, they're drawing, or, or in Jonathan's case, he's using his iPad and they're, they're doing art in the midst of my, and this is what, one of Jonathan's, as it happened when I was speaking. What they're seeking to do is they're seeking to capture moments and find beauty. Not content simply with the mundane. How can we experience more and draw more out of life? Our souls were made for beauty. They were not made for the mundane. And so the quest to find it, to seek it, to explore it, to discover it, and to drink it in is well worth doing. Warehouse's passion for art is making that happen here. Thirdly, care for those who are broken. The longer I live, the more I believe that every single human soul is created with a dignity that is stunning. And yet, and yet, it's actually all the more tragedy when we see brokenness because the fall is so great from what we were intended. And I think that's not okay. One of my fondest memories leaving Warehouse will be the Christmas toy store. Because at bottom, we ask this question, not how can we allow people to have some presence, but how can we give people dignity? How can we help to restore their dignity? One of my greatest hopes for the church in general, and not simply this one, is that the church would become more and more a place that speaks out to break the misery of people and doesn't speak out against their lifestyle. It's just too easy to do that. It's just too easy to look around our world and call it broken and then speak out against the lifestyle of everyone else who doesn't happen to be in a particular pattern of life that you're not. That's easy. And I long to be a person who in the rest of my days asks this question. How can I bring dignity to that soul because it deserves it? Final thought, walk with God. Life is simpler 
not easier, don't get me wrong here, but simpler than I used to think it was. The thing I wouldn't say to you is run in front of God, work hard for God. Lord, kill yourself, please. Sacrifice your life, your family, your hope, your mental health for God. I would say walk with God. Because one of the things that's true for you is that God could place a plaque over your soul which says to Julie, to Steve, to Christina, who sought to live life well from God, who always walked beside her. That's why I love the gospel. That's why sometimes I hate religion. It's why I love the gospel. But the singular truth is the God of the universe sees you, died for you, and longs to walk beside you every day. Does not seek to create you into a clone of some other image that someone else has told you about how you should live, seeks to walk beside you and help you to come alive. So when all is said and done, after eight and a half years, eight and a half years where we've worked together and talked together and created projects and explored things, after eight and a half years, I really just sum it up there and say, how would I mark this moment? How do I infuse the significance, our time, and the shared experience that we have had? Well, let's do this. For Nan and I, as we move into new opportunities, with great hope, because the things that are core true that we've lived out while we are here, we want to live out even more fully every day as we go forward. We go forward with great hope and great optimism that a few things matter and we're going to grasp them tightly. And I would have that same for you and believe through the warehouse community you will find those simple and profound truths. Walk with God. Care for those who are broken. Find beauty and grasp it wherever you can and live your life learning to love others and be loved by those who walk alongside you. Let's pray. Lord, I, I do think the simple things are usually the best and the truest. And so I pray for each one of us that we could mark this day days move fast, our lives move fast, we can mark this day. And just as a way to remember the core of how we want to live our life. And to feel that deep sense of resonance together that your, your spirit is waking that within us. To shed ways of thinking, acting, and living which are counterproductive. And finding a life of love and beauty and compassion for which we were made and through which we become free. We pray all this in great hope because of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right.